You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Picture this. You're sitting comfortably in your seat on an airplane. Or I guess if we're being more realistic, we should say you're sitting uncomfortably in your seats on an airplane. When the person next to you leans over and asks you the worst question a stranger can ask another person on a plane. That's right. They lean over all three centimeters and they say to you, so what do you do? Now, I know what you're thinking. Amanda, that is not the worst question anyone could ever ask another person on an airplane. In fact, I can think of a few off the top of my head. Something like, hey, can you pass me that barf bag? Or um, can I use your shoulder as a pillow while I take a nap? Right? There's a couple of other questions that might be worse. But in my defense, all I can say to those of you who are skeptical is that at the very least, this is the worst question that a stranger could ask me on an airplane. And the reason is because when people I don't know find out I'm a pastor, they almost always respond in one of three very predictable ways. Here we go. Buckle up. (laughs) Way number one. Uh, They begin to share with me their entire life story (laughs) as it pertains to things of faith, (laughs) particularly if they are someone who isn't currently a churchgoer for whatever reason. They tell me stories about their crazy pastor or a botched wedding service that they went to one time or a church scandal they heard about. They tell me why they don't go to church and why religion is just really a waste of everyone's time. So that's option one. It only gets better from there. Option two is that their eyes immediately go wide. And they say something like, well, I guess I better be on my best behavior. Which usually just makes me feel creepy. (laughs) Like I'm some sort of weird Santa Claus keeping a naughty and nice list of everyone around me. I don't do that, just for the record. So that's option two. Option three might be my favorite. This is when their initial response is something like confusion or disbelief. It usually sounds like, uh, but you're so young, I don't understand, how? Or, uh, I didn't know women could be pastors. (laughs) Or, even better, I don't believe in women pastors. (gasps) (laughs) So I've got to encounter a stranger whose response to learning about my job doesn't fall into one of those three categories in one way or another. I actually have a colleague who is also a female pastor um, who sometimes makes it a practice to tell people that she's an accountant when strangers ask her what she does. Uh, She feels bad about lying, but it spares her the turmoil of these typical responses. And honestly, no one ever has any follow-up questions when they think you're an accountant. So pretty solid strategy. I thought about adopting this approach, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And so now, instead, when a stranger asks me what I do, I usually whisper, I'm a pastor, and hope that they don't hear me. (laughs) Here's the thing. The reason that talking to strangers about my profession is so hard 
is because they don't know me, but they think they do. They think they know me because suddenly they know about me. Right? These people know about church. They probably know a little something about church history and how messy it is. They know about sermons and pews and potlucks and committees. They know about Sunday school and youth group. Right? They know about the Bible. They know a lot about my work when they find out that I'm a pastor. So they know a lot about me at that point. But there's so much that they don't know. What they don't know is that from the time I was a small child, church has always felt like home to me. What they don't know is that I used to baptize my dog and give her communion when I was a kid uh, because I wanted her to be a part of our church too. What they don't know is that I continue to be compelled in some way uh, to try to lead the church forward into what is an increasingly complex future. What they don't know is how beautiful this church is, this church that you and I share, and how profoundly it has shaped me into the person that I am today. They don't know any of that. I think if they could know me, like really know me, their only response, regardless of that weird church they went to one time, or that one mean priest who used to yell at them, or their own opinions about women in ministry, if they really knew me, their only response would be to say, yeah, that makes total sense. You see, there's a difference between knowing about someone and truly knowing them. We see this reality happen often in Scripture, especially in the Gospels. Many people think that they know Jesus when in reality they just know a little bit about him. Even when he is an infant, there are those who think they know Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, we learn that King Herod believes that the coming Messiah will be a direct threat to his reign, to all the power that he has so strategically amassed over these people. And so he tries to convince the three magi from the east to report back on Jesus' location for him. And instead, after they find Jesus, they go back home another way to avoid having to talk to him. There's another story where the religious leaders believe Jesus to be a blasphemer because he offers forgiveness to a man after healing him. Yet another moment, uh, there's uh, this incredible story of uh, Jesus sort of strolling up to the disciples' boat on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the storm, walking on water, and they call him a ghost. And it says there at the end, they screamed. <laughs> After he exercises demons in one town, the people don't even know what to call him, but they know they don't want him around, and so they ask him to leave. And then in another town, when he exercises a demon, the religious leaders there say that he is a servant of the ruler of the demons. At various points throughout the Gospels, Jesus is called teacher and Lord, king of the Jews, son of God, the carpenter's kid, and the human one. There's even a moment where, uh, in response to his question, who do people say that I am, the disciples tell him, some people say that you're John the Baptist, and other people say that you're uh, Elijah, and still other people say that you are one of the prophets. But when Jesus poses the same question to the disciples themselves, 
Peter is the only one who gets it right. You are the Christ, he says. And then Jesus orders them all not to tell anyone about him. All these names offered to Jesus come from knowledge about him rather than actually knowing him. I believe this is part of the reason why Jesus encourages the people that he meets to keep what is called the messianic secret, which it kind of sounds like a conspiracy theory or like a, like a documentary that you would watch on Amazon Prime, but it's a real thing, this messianic secret, right? Um, just like he does in this passage from Mark. This also happens when Jesus performs amazing miracles, right? Like when he returns sight to two blind men, And he says, make sure no one knows about this. Sort of an odd evangelistic strategy, don't you think? Of course, anytime he does that, they immediately go to spread the news about what Jesus has done, just like any good miracle recipient would do. Some scholars believe that Jesus does this because he is very aware of his tenuous position in both Jewish and Roman societies at the time. He is very aware that he is... Uh, often breaking long-held traditions or rules or even laws in his life and in his ministry. And so, these scholars say, he tells people to keep it on the down low so that he can fly under the radar until the right time. That may be true. I think it might be. Um, But I also wonder if Jesus knows that until someone is able to experience him for themselves until they are able to have a true encounter with him, it is all too easy to misunderstand who he is. If you've been with us these past several weeks, we've been moving through a sermon series we're calling Neighborhood Disciples, Living the Gospel in Suburbia. And we've been exploring some of the lowercase g gospels that our life here together preaches to us the gospels of convenience and abundance, the gospel of the nuclear family. Today, though, the invitation for us is to wonder about a different kind of gospel. We'll call this gospel the gospel of knowing, or maybe we'll call it the gospel of certainty. Because there's something about the way that you and I live in the world right now that convinces us that we can know everything there is to know about everything about faith, about religion, about the whole world, about other people. We think we understand it all. We live in this perpetual state of certainty about things that are far outside the realm of our understanding, about people who are far outside the realm of our understanding. There are several different ways that this gospel of knowing plays out in our everyday lives, but particularly when we apply it to a life of faith, I like to refer to it as a WebMD kind of faith. So in case you don't know about WebMD, it is a website that offers a deeply thorough explanation for every possible symptom you could ever experience as a human being. And the laughable part of this uh, website is that when you type in something like sore throat, sneezing, itchy eyes, the results on WebMD range from seasonal allergies to horribly painful, unavoidable, imminent death. And despite the uncertainty that this website offers to, we'll call us the diagnostically curious, uh, 
it is far too easy for us to operate as though it is the perfect diagnostic tool. All of my friends who are in the medical field lament WebMD all the time. They want to say to people like you and me, oh, I didn't realize you got your medical degree from the University of Google. We think we know, right? We convince ourselves that the internet is a viable substitute for medical school or law school, that it's a viable substitute for becoming an actual scientist or a historian. This reality is the result of what is called the democratization of information. We all have all of the information in the world at our fingertips all the time, which is wonderful. That's a good thing. But we are so often tempted to misuse it to become our own experts about everything, all the while bypassing important processes of learning and understanding and knowing. It's interesting because another... Um, it, it, all of this kind of happens with, happened with the rise of social media, right? With this advent of social media that's sort of taken over the way that we interact with one another. And another way that social media contributes to the gospel of knowing is this fact that we have not only more information about the world, but more information about each other than ever before. All of our best pictures get shared with all of our, pe all of our people, right? All of the people that we know in our lives. All of our cleverest thoughts become tweets all of our best accomplishments go on our resume, on our LinkedIn page. Through social media, we can know more about each other than ever before. And then there's this third way, a different way, that we see this gospel of knowing, this gospel of certainty at work, and that is in the world of American politics. You don't need me to paint the picture for you. Our nation is painfully, almost irreconcilably divided, and regardless of where we land on that political spectrum, uh, we think we know it all. As soon as we learn who someone voted for or what side they are on, they are lumped into a category, they are put into a box from which it will be nearly impossible for them to escape in our hearts and in our minds. We are so certain we know one another that we draw these lines in the sand, separating us from them. In all of these ways and more, you and I practice and we preach this gospel of certainty, this gospel of knowing in our everyday lives, and the result is that when we apply this false gospel to our life of faith, the posture of expertise that we now approach everything with causes us to know a lot about Jesus, sometimes without ever truly knowing him. To be completely honest, this is where Jesus and I often have words, uh, because I am incredibly guilty of believing in this gospel of knowing. I'm incredibly guilty of thinking myself to be the expert on all things and all people. I'm guilty of this us and them thinking. I wonder if you might sometimes be guilty of those things too. Bad news for me bad news for us, maybe, is that Jesus does some of his very best work with them. Tax collectors, prostitutes, foreigners, the poor, the oppressed, people who have never been experts on anything in their entire lives. Whoever you might perceive of as your enemy, as someone on the opposite side from you, I would be willing to bet that Jesus showed grace to someone just like them and then made them a partner in his ministry in the Gospels. 
I bet there's a story like that in there for you. He made them experts on the kingdom of God. And what's even more haunting to think about is the reality that you and I might not actually be us. We might sometimes be them. This work that Jesus does with them is what earns him the title of blasphemer, this uh, title of servant of the demon ruler, and ultimately the title of criminal, deserving of execution. Because Jesus takes all of our knowledge, all of our certainty, all of our judgments, and then flips them on their heads. Jesus invites us into a totally different way of being, a different way of knowing. That means there is no such thing as us and them. Jesus invites us into a different way of living in which we can have no enemies. And this way of living will not be easy. Listen to this. Here at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he tells those gathered, go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide. So many people enter through it, but the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road difficult. So few people find it. This new way of knowing that Jesus invites us into isn't easy. If it was easy, Jesus is saying, everybody would do it. But it requires us to admit that we might not know everything. It requires us to walk through life with uncertainty, with humility. That's where this narrow path leads us. Watch out. Jesus warns us, look out for those false prophets. Look out for the people who would convince you that they know, that they are certain. These are people who come to you dressed as sheep, but inside they are like vicious wolves. And the way we can identify these false prophets, he says, is through their fruit. False prophets will lead us down a path of destruction, of harm, of violence, of death. That is their fruit. False prophets might even look good. They might even sound good. But their fruit is always going to be rotten to the core. These false prophets are those who judge other, other people. They are those who are violent or who choose to turn away when confronted with violence. They are people who refuse to look out for anyone other than, than themselves. We can identify a false prophet because they are people who can make an enemy out of anybody. What Jesus is saying here is that we must be people who live our lives discerning the fruit of those around us and ourselves rather than just judging by what we can see on the surface. In fact, earlier in his sermon, Jesus has already warned us about judgment in no uncertain terms. Don't judge he says, so that you won't be judged. You will receive the same judgment that you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt to you. As it turns out, we cannot embrace this gospel of knowing, this gospel of certainty, this gospel of judgment, and the gospel of Jesus Christ at the same time because the gospel of Jesus Christ requires for us to be people 
who are comfortable admitting that we do not know everything and that our job is never to judge. It is only to bear fruit. Because as long as we know everything, we have left no room for another person to surprise us. We've left no room for God to surprise us. We have tried to put God in a box of our own making in the same way that we put one another in boxes. And then we become our own self-fulfilling prophecy of knowing everything about everyone all the time. We become judge and jury and executioner and our fruit becomes incredibly rotten. There's an author named Kevin Nye and he makes this observation He writes, in the Gospels, Jesus is asked 187 questions. He answers maybe eight of them. He himself asks 307. Maybe faith isn't about certainty, he says, but learning to ask and sit in the complexity of good questions. So what are some of the good questions that we can ask to undermine this gospel of knowing and to embrace the true gospel? Well, the best way I can think of to do that work of unknowing is to consistently ask ourselves three questions all the time, especially any time we might be falling into the trap of believing we already know everything there is to know. We have to stop and ask, number one, what do I actually know? And then very close behind that, we have to ask, what do I just think I know about this situation, about this person, about God? And if we're being honest, I think we'll find that the answers to both of those questions are often the same thing. Something like, far less than I think I do. Combine those questions with, What would Jesus do? We'll be able to undermine the gospel of knowing and instead embrace the true gospel, which will turn everything we know upside down completely. Asking questions and learning how to live in the complexity of uncertainty will empower us to embrace the God who does not fit into our box of knowing, who will not be bound by what we think we know, It will enable us to have our understanding blown to bits by Jesus, who is himself a paradox beyond all knowing. And it will give us the strength to reserve our judgment until we can have a true encounter with Jesus for ourselves. And in my experience, at that point, we'll find that we won't have any judgment left to give. You know, there's this story in the Gospels, the very end of Jesus' life, when, uh, as predicted by Jesus himself, Peter denies knowing him three different times. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says to Peter this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But listen to what Peter says. Even if I must die alongside you, I won't deny you. It says all the disciples said the same thing. 
Just a few hours later, as they are praying, or in Peter's case, napping in the garden of Gethsemane, the crowds come for Jesus. They arrest him, and one disciple even tries to fight. But Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then it says that all the disciples deserted him and fled into the night. This moment has been interpreted in a thousand different ways, most of them centering on the faithlessness and the fear of these weak, confused disciples. But I think something different is happening here. See, I think Peter meant what he said. I think he would have gone into battle with Jesus, would have died for him. Like many of the Jewish people at the time, I think Peter is still expecting Jesus to be the hero that they need. This military leader who would incite a rebellion with swords and clubs to overthrow the Roman Empire and to install them as the new kings, the new rulers, the new conquerors. In this moment in the garden, when Jesus surrenders himself to be arrested and beaten, and humiliated, and killed. Everything that Peter thinks he knows is turned on its head. And so when Peter is accused of being one of Jesus' companions and he shouts at them, I don't even know this man. I don't think he's lying. Peter knows all about Jesus, but he does not yet truly know Jesus. Because Jesus is everything Peter never expected him to be. And maybe Jesus is everything Peter never even wanted him to be. Peter's denials become a warning for all of us. We might know about Jesus, but until we embrace his narrow way, until we lay down our swords, until we come to terms with all that we don't know, we will never truly know Jesus ourselves. A few days later, after Jesus is resurrected, there's this moment on the beach when he's reunited with his disciples once again. After what I'm sure was a delicious fish breakfast, Jesus turns to Peter and asks him, do you love me? Peter, who has to be agonized about these denials that he so recently offered, is adamant that he does love Jesus. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. We hear from Peter three times. Feed my lambs, Jesus responds. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. I believe it is only in this moment that Peter finally comes to know Jesus. He comes to know that to love Jesus means to care for one another. To love Jesus is to embrace his narrow way of humility and non-judgment and unknowing. To love Jesus is to be much less certain of everything that we think we know and much more open to meeting Jesus in the places and in the people, in the lambs and in the sheep we least expect to find him. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, 
please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.